Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Welcome to another episode of Shared History. Think outside the history. I would love to. I think we try to. We try to do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we I... think outside the history just because we don't know the context of the history and we forgot to look it up before we started. Yeah, we'll just fill in gaps. Mm-hmm. We'll just fill it in with some lame is. <laughs> Time to... Nope. Shit, that's not... That wasn't even... That's under Bocelli. That's not even a musical... But I listened to it today. Um, wow, you're so cultured. I am cultured. I listen to music and opera. Um, and that's so funny because today we have a loose theme of music. Loosey goosey, a little bit of a little dash of music. A little mm-hmm. dash of music for you guys today. Yeah. Um, should I just jump right in? Shit, that'd I be say- like the most efficient we've ever <laughs> We're keeping it. You know what? That's fine because I'm starting today and I have a lot that I want to talk about before I even actually kind of get to my topic. (laughs) So so I'm going to dig right in. Uh, I have brought to you today the story of Billy Tipton, an American jazz musician whose career was popping from like 1930s to like late 1970s. So uh, the, the, the peak of their career was probably like, th- like 30s through 50s. You may have heard of Tipton before. I don't know if you have. Uh, I have not. Started, I was like, every week I just secretly wish that we chose the same topic. And I thought that there was a chance this week. but I thought Natalie and I were talking about this before. And I specifically did not choose someone because Natalie had... Uh, hinted at something i was like oh no it's gonna be the same exact one um but it's not oh my god well uh as always you disappoint me because i secretly hope that we have the same topic one of these days days. one of these days we'll get it (laughs) i like how we spent so much time planning for season one and season two so that we wouldn't have it we texted rip we're like hey we had this topic okay don't let anyone know don't tell natalie is it close should i change it we had safeguards in place. And now every single week I'm like, ooh, but what if? But what if though? Um, especially when we like choose a loose theme for the episode. So the reason I say that you maybe have heard of Tipton before, besides the fact that they were just uh, incredibly talented and successful, is because their life has inspired numerous books. And you and I like books. Uh, mm. Also a play, also an opera, which we just established your culture and listen to opera. So I've probably also, heard of it. I'm sure I have. Also a jazz musical, also a recent documentary, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And perhaps part of the reason that they've inspired so much other content is because upon their death, Billy Tipton was revealed to be biologically female. Oh. And like, no one knew. Like, no one knew. Like, like wives- everyone thought that, that they were a man? Yes. Whole life? Yeah. Well, not their whole life. Okay. So here's break it down. 
here's this is why I was like, I want to talk about this. Um, the documentary uh, about Billy Tipton uses he him pronouns. My sources were like 50 50 on it. Um, but since none of my said so because since because none of my research confirmed how Billy identified, that's why I'm using they them pronouns. It just feels like the most respectful to Billy to me. Mm. Um, I was actually like a little irked because one of the one of the best uh, sources that I found and one of the best like articles was a 1998 article from New York Times that repeatedly referred to Tipton with she her pronouns especially in quotes f- from um, uh, 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 Diane Middlebrook, who is an author who wrote a biography on Tipton that like came out around that time. And that's why like she was so heavily interviewed in mm-hmm. this New York Times article. And like she even says at one point, quote, I don't think she thought she was born in the wrong body. That's a contemporary narrative. She's not a lesbian because the women she was with didn't know she was female. She occupied an undefinable space. She was someone who worked creatively in the gap between biology and gender, which the back end of that, I'm like, yes, we worked creatively in the gap between biology and gender. We were undefinable. Fine. But like, you don't, you just said you don't think she identified as male, but you don't know. You don't know for sure. You can't confirm that. And, yeah. and B, a person's sexuality is not defined by who they have actually had sex with. Yeah. Which is what I feel like was implied by, by quote, she's not a lesbian because the women she was with didn't know she was female. Because that would, like, imply the type of sex that was occurring. Yeah. But also, Tipton had relationships with women before her, like, developing their... their persona as a male like before before they were billy tipton they had relationships with women and also slept with women while presenting as male mm-hmm. like we there we did have sexual relations so just like i don't know i have a lot of thoughts about that part of the quote <laughs> <laughs> um i i do think in middlebrook's defense i do feel like she was probably selectively quoted in the new york times article because yeah. in a more academic piece because, like, for the New York Times article, like, the story is, like, oh, how sexy, that, like, how scandalous, what intrigue. But in an academic piece, she is quoted as explicitly saying, I think the Tipton story is about the indeterminacy of gender identity. You can't draw a bottom line with her about identity. But again, we're still, we're still choosing pronouns, but it's, like, the it's the 90s. yeah. I like there's I have uh, I have a lot of she uses she still uses she her and then definitively says that Tipton wasn't trans of course it's 1997 so the word used was transsexual um and then she says quote I believe Billy's relationship to herself was female she was the actor he was the role but then says Billy clearly was a sexy man there's no question he was a talent he was a he was a heterosexual guy so I'm like what do you I why why draw why draw a definitive line and then say there isn't a definitive line any historian i feel like when they get close to a a subject they feel like they're a part of it and then they it's hard to not put your views on it Mm -hmm. so it sounds like that might be a lot of like i've just i've studied billy and i know she just she was a woman and she felt these things and then someone else could be like 
No, she believed, you know, she identified as a man. Like, it's hard to take away your own personal ideas, prejudices, all of that stuff. Yeah. And just, did Billy say either way? We don't know. Yeah. So that's like, because, because it is 2021 and we, and Billy never, to my knowledge and research, said either way. Uh, I'm going to go with they, them, because that is gender neutral and respectful and not super difficult to do human <laughs> humanity. Everyone practice at home. It's great. Yeah, because also then there's like, there's more recent articles, of course, that basically say that Billy in transmasculine circles is seen as both like an ancestor and a martyr. But it's also acknowledged in other articles that how Billy may have identified themselves has is not conclusive in any direction with any evidence. Like we don't we don't know, we don't know. So all that said, I'm gonna err on the side of being respectful uh, and go with uh, they them because also cisgender historians have a history of erasing transgender people and botching gender in general. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna do it. What honestly I kind of regret not doing that with Kathy Williams who I gendered as female after the like reveal part of that story. But mm. most sources on that topic were like, she identified as a woman. She was disguised as a man for this limited amount of time for this purpose. Um, yeah, there was a purpose behind it. Yeah. And there's kind of a purpose for Billy. So I'll, okay. Tipton's story. Uh, born 19, in 1914, um, they were born Dorothy Lucille Tipton. Uh, we love a good name, although I hope that doesn't mean I just dead named them. Um, born in Oklahoma City, parents divorced when they were young, moved to Kansas City, Missouri to be raised by an aunt. Went by the nickname Tippy, which I love the most. Tippy just sounds like Tippy plays tennis, Tippy plays golf, <laughs> Tippy owns a lot of polos and likes to wear a sweater over their shoulders. Fell in love with music in high school. <laughs> that old story, but was not allowed to join the all-male school band at their Kansas City school and thus returned to Oklahoma for senior year to join the school band there. So shout out Connor State College High School for having a co-ed band. Tippy played the piano, the organ, and the saxophone, and Tippy was damn good at it. Assuming Tipton graduated around 18, they would have finished school around 1932, which I only say because then it's like really impressive to see kind of the development of their career so quickly. In the 1930s, and also to provide context of like in the 1930s, and for some time after, jazz was everywhere, but jazz was primarily a man's world. Mm. Which I was like, is it though? And then I was realized that all of the female jazz musicians I could name are vocalists, not the instrumentalists. So it seems like in the band, yeah, jazz was a male world when it came to like women weren't necessarily on the keys or leading the band. Yeah, there was like an unwritten rule that in that area women didn't get hired. Tipton had already experienced exclusion once, having to transfer schools to be in a band. So maybe that's what sparked their decision to begin binding in 1933. We now know that a lot of biological females assumed male identities throughout history for economic and social purposes. I just mentioned Kathy Williams. 
in an article written up upon Tipton's death and quote unquote reveal, because again, nobody knew they were biological fe female until, with the exception of like their family that raised them until their death, uh, a colleague says in this article, quote, I don't think there was that kind of prejudice back then, says Red Kelly, former member of the Woody Herman band. <laughs> There weren't a lot of women, but there were plenty and that were good and highly respected. And it's clear that Billy was really good. So again, we're like, we don't know. Yeah. Um, regardless of the motivators behind it, Tipton's life presenting as male began and carried on for nearly 50 years. So when, uh, when they first got started, their female cousins would help them dress up in more traditionally masculine clothing for auditions. They introduced themselves with their father's name, Billy, began biting their chest and patting their pants slash wearing a prosthetic. One source says it's a cup. Um, and they started getting jobs. Like, I don't know. The way that it's like phrased in a lot of the sources is like, just tried this to see if they'd be taken more seriously. And then they worked. When, if somebody ever noticed the bandages, because uh, they bound with ace bandages, they simply just said that they had a childhood car accident that like broke some of their ribs and, and damaged mm. their genitals. And so to protect their damaged chest, they had to bind it. They were 5'4", wide-hipped, and per a source, quote, perennially pink-cheeked and baby-faced. <laughs> they had a higher tenor voice. Um, by the mid to late 1930s, Tipton was already the leader of a band on a local radio station. I say local, but remember that Kansas City was an epicenter for jazz. So like a local Kansas City radio station for jazz, pretty, Means pretty a lot. Pretty good, pretty good gig. <laughs> uh, this, ain't, this ain't no small potatoes. Um, by 1940, they were touring the Midwest. They were playing at dances. They played with Scott Cameron's band. Um, they then had a residency performing at a Missouri club, which it's just so funny to like think about. Like, I know that these are jazz clubs. Yeah. And and I'm not like nightclubs the way that like nightclubs were ruined by the late 90s. <laughs> well, were changed in the 80s and then ruined by the 2000s. <laughs> um, but it's just always fun to be like, a Missouri club. They then uh, toured again, played all around Texas. Basically, the 1940s were a circuit of like on again and off again touring. When they were playing with the George Myers Band in Roseburg, Roseburg Oregon's Shalimar Room in 1949, a local radio station recorded the show. So we have some of our earliest recordings of Tipton's work. Really? Mm hmm. I will share it on the social media. That's at SharedPod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, the Or I'll put it on our YouTube, one of the two, or both. The trio's signature song was Flying Home. But yeah, on, you, on YouTube, if you, go to our, if you go to our YouTube, there is always a, a playlist of things that were referenced in episodes. And we have it sorted by season. It's not necessarily sorted beyond that. Because <laughs> sometimes it's weird shit we referenced. And sometimes it's like a thing that we referenced for a topic. <laughs> but I will see if I can find it and add it there. Moving into the 50s, Tipton branches out, not going solo, but like going solo, kind of, played solo for a little bit, formed the Billy Tipton Trio. So now it's our name out front. You go, Billy Tipton. Uh, Dick O'Neill on drums, Kenny Richards, and later Ron Killed on bass. Got to shout out the rest of the trio. They gained popularity in Washington State, where Tipton was playing at this point in their career. 
with the trio, Tipton rocked a white dinner jacket and Ooh. slicked back hair. We getting all the ladies. We're we're scouted by Topps Records while we're on tour in 1956. We get a contract. We do two albums of jazz standards for Topps. Um, those albums are called Sweet Georgia Brown and Billy Tipton Plays Hi-Fi on Piano, both released in early 1957, which you know I jammed to the moment I finished my oh, research. Oh, hell yes. In the wake of all this album success, Billy Tip, the, the trio was offered um, a position as a house band at a holiday hotel casino in Reno. Ooh. And opening for Liberace. Stop it! I almost did Liberace! Uh, we would have almost had a connection because the trio <laughs> turns down the contract. What? Tops also wanted four more albums, but like Tipton declined basically on behalf of the whole band um, and moved back to Washington State to continue performing there. And uh, and also that's when they started working as like a talent broker and like a booking agent for other bands. The biographer Middlebrook, uh, who's the one who I quoted in the New York, New York Times article, theorizes that Tipton may have turned it down because larger scale exposure would have maybe would have put their expo the exposure of their secret at higher risk. Yeah. They did eventually have to retire from playing altogether in the late 1970s because of arthritis. Rip them fingies. But uh like I said, white dinner jacket, slick back hair, we were a lady killer. <laughs> Tipton had many relationships when they were on the road and then they were back at home. They were never legally married, but I think I read that five different women were known as Mrs. Tipton at one time or another. What? Not like at the same time, but like five five different women oh, identified okay. as... Oh, okay. He just got like... He got hosed in different area codes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, again, the biographer uh, had a theory about this, saying that Tipton preferred women who were more self-involved or quote people who don't pay attention to other people who don't notice things tipton was also able to create a feeling of intimacy without attracting notice so i'll talk about two of tipton's wives one was betty cox they met in 1946 they lived together as man and wife for seven years these are long relations uh, had a sexual relationship, but Cox was 18 when they met and came from a very sheltered background where sex was like, we don't talk about it. Very healthy upbringing. Oh, yeah. Uh, folks did not, it's the 40s, but like fo folks did not undress in front of each other. And like, if you were doing any hanky panky, you turn the lights off. <laughs> so, and as I noted before, Tipton had a prosthetic. So we made do. Wait, so. When you say no one knew, like no one his, knew, like his wives didn't, like a lot of his like paramours. According or... to all sources, the only people who knew were his family back home, like his aunt who raised him and his female cousins who would dress them up, like would help them get dressed for auditions. Because I think I read something that was like when they went back home, either they dressed as a female again like presented female again back home but like obviously these people back home know that billy's getting recognition in her like yeah. throughout the like national recognition as a man yeah or they're just like back home like they knew that 
they knew that Billy was born a female and they just were like, meh, meh, meh. yeah, I don't know. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that, that, um, checks out with the attraction to women who don't pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved the way it was phrased. It's just like, it's just women who, who are self-involved and who just don't pay attention <laughs> to other people or just like don't notice things. And it was very like trusting and just like, wow, like this person really takes care of me and loves and respects me. And I'm not going to ask a lot of questions about it. Um, Cox credits touring for ending their marriage. And then uh, Billy's last wife, and I think last wife in the line of wives, uh, was Kitty Kelly. Again, such a good name. Uh, Kitty that Kelly. That also sounds like someone who wears sweaters over their shoulders and tennis bracelets. And call me oh, Kitty. Oh, but she not <laughs> so demure. Kitty Kelly uh, was a stripper known as the Irish Venus, which is also what I call, <laughs> uh, I call Cassie Irish Venus. Yes. Yeah. Um, whom Tipton met when they settled in Spokane after after saying no to the Liberace gig in Reno. In a letter to her, Tipton wrote, quote, I love you with everything that is in me, and I only hope that I can make you happy for the rest of my life. So simple, so sweet. Um, Kitty and Tipton, uh, again, lived together as man and his wife. Um, In an interview, Kitty said that she had an illness that prevented her from having a sexual relationship with Tipton, but that she never knew Tipton wasn't biologically male. They didn't share a room, but they loved each other and they were happy together. They adopted adopted three boys, John, Scott, and William. Uh, Tipton was a bomb-ass dad. Like, he was, Tipton was such a good daddy. Uh, Tipton was, uh, I wrote, Tipton was a dope daddy. (laughs) <laughs> which I feel like if I say that has different connotations. Uh, Tipton was a scoutmaster, took the boys on camping trips, had a very close relationship with, with the sons. All of them are like, they were an amazing father. Um, after Kitty and Tipton split in 1981, the boys went to live with their father, Billy Tipton. So, That's like very unusual uh, for children to go to the father. Yeah, they were like, Tipton is the better parent. <laughs> They're great. Billy's the best. We want to stay with Billy. Um, all they they also had two Ill- illegally adopted sons because those those three boys were full legal adoptions. Um, I couldn't find as much information about the illegally adopted sons. They seem to have changed their names. Say, they didn't go through proper illegal. adoption channels. I think that just means that they didn't go through a proper adoption channels. I don't think it means that they were kidnapped. <laughs> Okay, that's exactly where my brain went. <laughs> yeah, uh, not forcibly adopted, just like, sub- I don't know. It's like <laughs> horrible, horrible analogy or a horrible comparison. But I was like, my one of my cats was just like a bonus <laughs> cat. Like Newton was Newton's There's mom strikes. was an outdoor cat who got knocked up. And my friend was like, I got these kittens and I took that kitten. I didn't have to fill out paperwork for that kitten. I just got that kitten. Yeah, the the two the two other sons, <laughs> the two other sons, uh, changed their name not long after Tipton passed, and their biological gender was revealed. So, read into that what you desire. Mm. Um, as I mentioned, Tipton's biological gender wasn't revealed until uh, they passed. It was uh, they were it was they were revealed to be biologically female by paramedics upon their death in 1989. 
they died due to a hemorrhaging peptic ulcer from heavy smoking because jazz. <laughs> because, because jazz. <laughs> uh, and also, though, because Tipton avoided going to the doctor because gender identity. That because makes sense. Secrets. Uh, Tipton's son William was there and the paramedics were essentially like, uh, did your father ever have a sex change? And William was like, no. And the paramedics were like, well, this is a woman. So basically no one knew. No one knew. Not their family, not their bandmates. Um, yeah. And it is in my notes. When they returned home to visit their parents, they became Dorothy again. Um, Kitty said in an interview that, quote, Billy did a great Houdini instead of treating this as a grand deception. Like, don't you think it's funny? Just was like, nope, this is just who I am. Nobody knows. There's no, no huge reveal. Just here we go. Um, Tipton's son, Scott, said, quote, I think he probably never told us because he was afraid we might have rejected him. I could have accepted it. He did a hell of a good job with us. That's what mattered. He was my dad. And um oh. Before before their death, Middlebrook writes that Billy had discarded all of their sex-concealing gear like they were prepared to emerge from behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz style, to reveal that, quote, the difference between men and women is largely in the eye of the beholder. So what's really funny is that, like, like I said, reading these things, these articles from the 90s, significantly like like within like 10 years after their death and this biography is being published and whatnot there are there are there are things that like there are quotes that i'm like that that that's very 90s um and problematic in the sense that it's very 90s but like all these articles all the most current articles say that like after billy's death a like transphobic media circus ensued which like yes it was 1989 Sure, but the article that I read from People magazine is from 1989 and is like announcing their death and also this hot goss. This article is actually very kind to Billy's legacy. Like the focus of the article is still their legacy and and the scandalous reveal. Mm-hmm. Yes, but like the content seemed, I don't know, fairly still fairly generous to me and like Ooh, look at this titillating piece of news. Scandal, scandal, um, nom, nom, sell papers, we're People magazine, but like not aggressively transphobic or not like, yeah, not, not like this scandal and this, this little piece of titillating news diminishes their, like Billy Tipton's accomplishments or legacy at all. So I had, I had like a weird design. Like, I just wanted to watch a lot of like 90s rom com is the wrong word because. You know, like the like high fidelities or <laughs> the edgy emo. Oh, I like music, but it's the, the, the 90s. That catalog is really just what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I watched like a few of them, and I was just really impressed what they did with how they handled like gay characters. Handled sounds like a bad word, but some of the stuff they were saying was just oof, cringe. But the you know stereotypical like gay best friend like they say that the character is gay but it's not like oh look here is our gay character and they like kind of say awful things to him but it's it's very much as in the like giving our our friends shit and i wish i could remember what movies they were i was just really 
kind of impressed at how, and maybe it's because they were trying to be all edgy and whatnot, how cool and like this character is gay, but this isn't our gay character. And yeah. it was just, it was bizarre to me. And so I can kind of see that, yes, the like transphobic media backlash at the time, but also there were little pockets of just like, this is, this is the nineties. This is the new world we're living in. Yeah. And yeah, I wonder with the, with movies, if it's like, cause I've definitely had things where I've gone into it going, this is, I know this is going to have some problems. Yeah. This, I like, I know this isn't going to age well. And then it's like, sometimes you're so pleasantly surprised that it forgives a lot of things. Yeah. Like one of the movies I watched, like, one of the black characters in there they it was like oh no you guys what are you doing stop stop but then they the way they treated gay characters in it was they were still saying like horrible horrible things but the character was <laughs> but it wasn't as bad as i expected i was more impressed with how they treated the gay character in that than some movies nowadays because nowadays it seems like this has no need to out this character or to like state that this character is gay, but we're going to say it so that we can add LGBTQ next to our streaming service and yeah. like get more They're people literally checking it. a like, box. Whereas I wonder if it's like yes. in the 80s and 90s, they almost had to like fight. They maybe had to like fight for there to be a gay character in it and be like, no, no, this is like a three dimensional character and this character is part of the story and they're a real person and like they're just there. And then also, possibly couldn't make the characters like too out and proud or like yeah. too like you can't god forbid we actually show their relationship yeah um like they maybe couldn't swing that but i wonder if if they almost had to be more intentional in the inclusion in order to in, keep in order to keep the character the way that they wanted it versus yeah. now where a lot of things feel like we're just ticking the box of look we did it and i think weirdly playing into a lot of a lot more stereotypes of like the effeminate gay man or the butch lesbian whereas most gay people i know are kind of in the middle of just like i'm i don't have this big character around me and there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. but like that's how the oh i can easily identify that person as gay of no it's just something in the background almost and yeah but this isn't a critique of 90s movies it's not well, it's, about that it's not about that but i mean one day it will be about that uh we're bound to get to just 90s movies as a topic <laughs> john cusack's catalog just the john Cus the cusack catalog uh i'd hate to say that it's just his catalog because joan is almost always there and and she's always crushing it yeah. Uh, justice for Joan. Cass, Cass, they did it. Did, wait, what now? They did it. They, they finally did it. Greatest store in the universe. Who? Raygun. They did it. They're the greatest store in the universe. Oh, says who? Says Raygun. Oh, okay. I'll buy it. You know what else you can buy? Clothing, home goods, and time travel supplies at raygunsite.com or at any of their six stores. Exactly. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. That's raygunsite.com, promo code SHARIALATER, all one word. I just think it's funny because, like, not funny, but it, just, it was just interesting because, like, this article, like, a bunch of article, current art, contemporary articles were, like, this media circus. And 
And the article that I that I bristled the most at was the one from like 10 years later, not the ones immediately following his death. Yeah. Where, yes, we're covering this tasty little scandalous morsel and we're using it to sell magazines and papers, but like all in all handled the story much more gracefully than I expected having read about this transphobic media circus. I don't know. Maybe it's another one of those things yeah. where it's like you ex- you're expecting the worst and you're like, oh. Um, and then it's another thing of did they handle it well or were my expectations just so low <laughs> that they exceeded them? Like, did they actually do a good job at this or is it just better than I thought it would be? <laughs> yeah. So... So that's Billy Tipton. There's uh, the documentary that I mentioned that came out just last year. It's called No Ordinary No Ordinary Man, um, and it got like it got it got it got a lot of good press just for telling the story in a in a way that like was really good for public discourse and representation and and taking into yeah. account like the the struggles the struggles to be heard and seen as potentially a trans individual um yeah. and then also just like negotiating the because it seems like a lot of what it came back to is like was this negotiating having the career and the opportunities that we wanted or was this negotiating like being out or like being able to pass so that it was a non-issue or a non-conversation i don't know but i thought uh yeah. i thought it was a a really it's a really interesting story. Billy's been on my on my list for a while, so I was excited to to dig in and cover them. I love that. I'm excited to dig into uh, Billy Tipton's oeuvre and uh, start listening to some jazz singles. I can't wait until I some call you and in the background I just hear some I just see some some Tipton jazz in the background. Like I'm sorry, I can't talk now. I'm jazzing. <laughs> I'm jazzing over here. Excuse me. Uh, um, it means it means that I also am legally required to smoke excessively uh, because jazz. <laughs> yes, with my illegally adopted children. Mm-hmm. That's that who, weirder. Who that else are you going to smoke with if not your illegally <laughs> not adopted my... sons? <laughs> uh, that is fair. I love that story. Uh, when we kind of loosely figured out theme, it was kind of. I like I when I said this to you, I named like three things that I was like, if you fit. Full disclosure, readers at home, I had originally researched this story for an episode that we have a guest on, uh, that at the time that we're airing this, we probably haven't played that episode yet. Um, but Cass, I said, Cass, do you want to set a theme for tomorrow? And she was like, well, I know that you have something already in your pocket. What is, what is a theme we could form around it? And I gave you three themes. So <laughs> I, I, I love that it seems like you have take, gone to the effort of ticking all of them off like it weirdly off. just fit I, the theme was kind of you were like queer erasure queer question mark music gender identity sexuality i was like i mean i feel like that's a lot of music history like yeah can, but i mean fair and so hey i appreciate the commitment yeah yeah i i wanted to do someone because i i did a um, Jessica Bejarano, a female conductor, contemporary female conductor for our season opener. Yes. And so I kind of wanted to do, I wanted to do that again. And there were so many, like, I just, you wanted to just do Jessica Bejarano again. <laughs> yeah. But like a lot of them were coming up were like, like contemporary. It's like, I want to do 
like old history. Like that was such an amazing topic to talk about. And she was so interesting, but I was like, Oh, but something is dying inside of me because it's not like ancient and way, way deep history. It's modern. Ugh. We, so I couldn't do it. We don't have to heavily asterisk it. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you about Frédéric Chopin. Are you familiar with Frédéric Chopin? I mean, is Frédéric Chopin just Chopin? The Chopin. Or I believe as... I had a little bust. I believe I had a little Chopin bust that uh, in piano... In piano lessons, uh, we could. Did you really? We in piano lessons as like rewards. We got we got stickers, and then we would get like little little busts of different composers. <laughs> and I feel like I don't know if I earned Chopin because I quit piano uh, a lot younger. Because when when my sister or my when my I think when my sister decided we were quitting, that was we all quit. Um, <laughs> that's not fair to Kathleen. None of us wanted to be there anymore. But she was the loudest voice. Kathleen gave you. Because she was the oldest voice. Kathleen does it. It's okay if we all do it. Yeah. Um, Many of you may know Chopin from the uh, seminal Mary Kate and Ashley classic, It Takes Two. Is that the one? Is that the one where like one of them goes to camp and it's like Prince and the Popper situation almost? I think so. I also think that you One of them's like really crappy and fancy. You're describing most Mary Kate and Ashley movies. Yeah. It's the one with Kirstie Alley. I think that's I don't know if that means anything. And then she like sits the like the girl who's like not as like as refined sits down to the piano. They're like, play something. She's like, um, I'm gonna play something by Chopin. Because that's how his name's spelled. And that's all I've been able to think about while researching <laughs> it. But I figured Natalie would appreciate this. Uh Frederick Chopin was born in Ooh, and I know I won't get this pronunciation right, even though I practiced it. It's Zielajowa Wola. It's in Poland. He's uh, he's born in Poland in March of 1810. He is Poland's biggest thing. Poland loves him. I found a quote that said that In Poland, where Chopin's music is omnipresent and where the artist commands a reverence rivaled only by compatriots Pope John Paul II and Marie Curie. Those are, I mean, that's, that's some company. Poland's got three people. They've got PJP2, Marie Curie, and Chopin, apparently. That's all they need. (laughs) Um, They also have most of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have a good, a good like third of Chicago. Good, good portion of Chicago. In in 2020, there was a a Swiss music journalist who did like an hour long radio show called Chopin's Men. Moritz Weber was a journalist, and he basically said that he had found a bunch of Chopin's letters. He didn't discover them. These are letters that have been in you know historian's hands for a while and realized that people had been either hiding that he was writing love letters to men they were changing the genders in the letters so that it was like he was writing it to women or they were kind of miscommunicating translations Uh, either straight washing or were friend washing these yeah yeah uh for those of you don't know chopin was a famous pianist he was inspired a lot by Bach and, and Beethoven and 
also highly like nationalistic. At the time, when he was 20 years old, the November 1830 uprising took place, which was, it was also called the upper, the cadet uprising or the cadet revolution, where I don't know who started it, but uh, Polish uh, cadets, nationalists, rebelled against the Russian occupation. Uh, Tsar Nicholas I was not being cool. Historically, Russia has not been super nice to a lot of people. Neighbor, cons- neighbors and, and, and further neighbors. And, and Poland specifically. So um, there was a lot of tumult in the air. I also think people a lot of times, like all those Eastern European countries, they're just like, oh, they're all Russian. No, there's a no, very... No, Russia just kept saying that... Russia kept saying they were Russian. Let's yes. All, let's all be better than Russia. Yes. Uh, so he um, he did a lot of... like The, the style of, of uh, music he wrote was primarily piano solos. Uh, you've probably heard them. I think a bunch of them are in the Twilight movies. Oh, thank God. I know. Um this just just goes to show what I think of our listeners. Like they won't know like what it's from, so they <laughs> probably have seen Twilight. Um, no, they're 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 called nocturnes, which are supposed to give an impression of night. They're very slow. They're very somber. They're very sad. They're in a lot of sad, depressing period films. Or you know, if you need a sad song, you throw Chopin in there. Yeah. Um, if so you I need to you, make you that vampire brood. Uh, give, give him some chopping. Give him some chopping. Uh, I was listening to Chopin on Spotify while I was doing all my research, and boy, was I just like feeling the feels. I was like, I get you, Frederick. I hope that your research just get, like gets very morose and like <laughs> sad. Meanwhile, I um, wish I wish that I had listened to Billy Tipton the entire time I did my research. That my research was a little bit more like doo 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 doo. <laughs> all the cigarettes <laughs> listen i mean choppin was probably doing snuff so oh fuck yeah I'll, I'll uh, like a nice little nice little snuff box little just a little bump for choppin his smelling salts we'll call mm-hmm. them so morris weber came out with this this two-hour radio show where he's talking about he's discovered chopin's gay or he had gay lovers and it's not really news. Like, that's what's interesting. Because when I, the little I know of him, I just know that he was, he had this, like, famous relationship with George Sand, who was a, her real name was Amatine Dubon. She was huge in the day. She was like a, I won't say philosopher, but like a, like an intellectual. She was really smart, really good writing. She dressed in men's clothing, which was what, you know, made her kind of like eccentric. And people were mm-hmm. talking about her because of that a lot. And he's got love letters between him and George Sand. And they had this this whirlwind romance and everyone um, like just that's what they associate when they think of Chopin and love. Uh, there was a movie with Hugh Grant where he called impromptu where Hugh Grant played Frederick Chopin and Judy Davis played George Sand. And it's just all about that. But there's always been this, this either description of him, this idea of him as he was 
he was delicate. He was slight. He was kind of effeminate, which I feel like in historical terms are like, that's coded for yeah. this guy is probably gay. And there was, there was mention of him, you know, like having a lot of male friends and maybe they were very cool, you know, just a lot of coded his- mm-hmm. historical references to that, which back then. Cho- if they Chopin were, and his friends. Yes. His roommates. <laughs> but so someone just like so blatantly coming out and saying this, first of all, Poland is one of the, it's been rated and I can't remember which there's like an actual organization for LGBTQ rights and they've rated Poland as one of the worst countries to be in um, for the way they treat LGBTQ citizens. Their current leader has said that they're not real people, um, has talked about, you know, doing bad things to them. It's not a safe place to be. Mm -hmm. And so... Like I said earlier, he's on the same level as Pope John Paul II. I don't know if y'all know how much people love PJP2. They fucking love him. Like, just Catholics in general. Like, I know people whose whose parents, like, they still have a picture of Pope John Paul in their homes. I don't know. It's cool to, like, have the Pope. Is it because he's, like, the Pope that they the most overlap with? Yes, but also I know that he was really, like... He didn't do. He's, he's not like other popes. He's Vatican a cool is, pope. He's not like other popes. He he kind of, I don't know if he modernized it, but he was uh, after the Second Vatican Council when, like back in the forties and fifties, in Catholic masses, the priest would face away from the audience. Congregation. They would face the congregation. I should know that word. Everything was in Latin. Um, and then after the Second Vatican Council, like. They, which was in like the 50s and 60s. That's when they started doing acoustic um, guitars, uh, theatrical lighting, bracelets, bracelets. youth ministers. Yes. Um, very, <laughs> very confusingly attractive youth <laughs> ministers with highlights. Um, so it was kind of bringing into the modern era. There was also a lot of turmoil and tumult going on in the world. You know, we got. We had the Cold War. We got all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was just a very, he was not polarizing at all. He was conservative and he was, you know, very staunch Catholic. Let's go back to traditional values. But also he was kind and seemingly open. And I don't know, people fucking loved him. I I just, I can't stress that enough. Growing up as a kid when he was still alive, like people were obsessed with him. So imagine Poland, right? Mm-hmm. They love him. And Marie Curie, like, think about how much Natalie loves Marie Curie. I mean. Now think about how much Poland loves Marie Curie. (laughs) Like, sorry, Nat, but I think they got it on you. That's fine. Chopin is at that level. Like, they are, their airport is a Chopin International Airport. They're obsessed with him. They're like, we have this claim to fame, this honor. He's a son of Poland. We love him. And a lot of his music he wrote was very nationalistic, indirectly. A lot of his music was based on uh, Polish folk music. Uh, There were quotes of people that would say, um, one quote says, he must be ranked first among the first musicians, individualizing in themselves the poetic sense of an entire nation. If the mighty autocrat in the North, Nicholas I, 
could know that in Chopin's work, in the simple strains of his mazurkas, there lurks a dangerous enemy. He would place a ban on his music. Chopin's works are canon buried in flowers. First of all, that's like a great quote. I like, like want that phenomenal. as like a tattoo. Like that's a tattoo yeah. design. That's straight up tattoo with like an infinity symbol underneath it. No, you just, <laughs> now you just, you just watered it down. <laughs> so water it down water, with a lemon skate. I've been listening to Chopin while I was researching this and hearing some of these things. Like he was just such like such a technical musician. Like no one could play his works like him. Um, people were he created a new genre. He's like the Jane Austen of the time. Jane Austen is not a romantic novelist. She is not Jane Austen was her own genre and. Mm-hmm. Professors and scholars to this day will say that in the genre of like gothic fiction, all that stuff. Jane Austen was her own. We believe you. No one's fighting with you. I just want y'all to understand the gravity of this situation. Hey, Nat, can we make this quick? I have to go check on my sponge. Your sponge? Ugh, you've been binging Bake Off again, haven't you? Four words. Paul Hollywood Soggy Bottom. Okay, well, when you're done with amateur hour, the adults will be over here ordering cakes from the pros at ECBG Cake Studio, because they make specialty cakes for all occasions. We're talking custom birthday cakes. We're talking jaw-dropping wedding cake masterpieces. We're talking Paul Hollywood just shook my hand, I deserve a cake cakes. ECBG Cake Studio, you said? Yes. And if you insist on trying to perfect your sponge, they also offer online baking classes. So follow at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram or visit their website, ecbgstudio.com. Um, and so list... Uh, one of his good friends and fellow composers. I was going to say, they, were they besties? They were besties, right? They were they were besties. I think they were little frenemies at some times. But, they but were, were they besties. like were they like Amadeus Mozart, Wolf and uh, and Beethoven frenemies, or they were actually like f- friendly? They were like they were good friends. Yeah. They were good friends. Um, List described the sounds of Chopin's Pleiel as being the marriage of crystal and water. Like this guy was just he was hot shit and he had he had relationships with women um and some scholars say that these letters that he would write to men way more passionate way more er like overtly erotic than any that he was writing to women and i wouldn't say that these ladies are like beards or anything he was probably bisexual but going back to the the point of queer erasure like i found this article that said should we care if chopin was gay and that goes back to like modern day poland right now like it's a dangerous place for queer people to live and showing the elevation of this this hero this national hero for Mm -hmm. over you know 200 years outing him could be kind of really bad like people could do some stupid shit but if you love this guy so much and you revere him and then you see this thing about him that you initially didn't understand or don't want to understand, mm-hmm. that's going to at least open your mind to asking questions. Yeah, because I was going to say it was so a lot. I would I would imagine that a lot of the countries at the top of 
the current list of like worst places to be gay have maybe always had a rocky relationship uh, and a, a history of oppressing their gay communities. But like, yeah. I'm willing to wager that a lot of them have gotten just like worse in the last 50 plus years. So I'm wondering like Some what of like, them... century Poland was. Yeah. Some of them in the past five years. Yes. Yeah. Like, that like we have only Trump, we have, like Trump did a number on the global community, didn't he? We have only gotten better at using. We've only gotten better and craftier at using our legal systems to exclude and oppress people. <laughs> We've only <laughs> evolved, uh, yes, in a horrible way in that <laughs> regard. Um, yeah, and so like was like 19th century Poland, maybe like. A little bit more. I mean, not with Russian rule, probably, but like in an artistic. I, I don't community. know much about. I don't know. Well, and so and so he moved to Paris when he was twenty. The the uprising of eighteen thirty happened, and he moved to Paris. And Paris, like, you can do whatever the fuck you want. In Paris, gay Paris, baby. <laughs> That's not what they're meaning, but gay Paris. Um, I think yes, in artistic communities, it was a lot more. Also, people just weren't talking. Like people, yeah. There wasn't the word gay. There wasn't the word, well, there was a word gay, but it didn't mean homosexual. There was no word homosexual. You know, people who had sex with same-sex people or relationships with people of the same sex, they were, it, it was called unnatural. It was called sodomy all the time too. But people also would just be like, well, they're, they're friends. You know, I feel like people didn't want to talk about mm -hmm. it. And I know that in some places, like it was, it was illegal, you know, and you could be jailed for it. But I feel like so many people just didn't want to talk about it. I also feel like artistic communities in general were keeping so many secrets for people where it was just like, we just like don't talk about what any of us oh, do yeah. behind closed doors because like all of us could be arrested for heresy or something. <laughs> like, like, all oh, hell it. yeah. Yeah. There's the state has could create cause to come after all of us if certain things that we did or have said behind closed doors have gotten out. Yeah. And and so this also goes back to an episode from season one, I believe, very early on. <gasps> Throw it back. Um, he didn't. He did not like concert performances. He did not like large crowd performances. He felt it was very performative and that you're trying to please so many people you're trying to do your best work that you're not truly engaging in your art so he preferred salons and these individualized and these intimate small shows for people like in their homes and their salons and as we know from salon culture paris salon culture german salon culture it was all of these open-minded people these like-minded people the artistic community it wasn't just musicians and artists they were uh, free thinkers, philosophers, uh, you know, people of science and like people didn't need to separate like, oh, you're a musician. So you only know things about music and hang out with musicians. I hate that nowadays. Like if you're a, an amazing mathematician, like you just hang out with math dudes or math chicks. No, like these people, their art was so integrated in all of these other either art forms or political movements or things that were going on in the day. They wanted to hang out with everybody and talk about all the things. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's that open-mindedness that even if your country or your laws don't allow it, if you're with a lot of kind of cool famous people and they all don't give a shit, 
No one yeah. else really does. They they might be like they might like let you say your piece or like play your piece or or do whatever you're doing and then maybe be like maybe don't maybe maybe don't do that again next time. I'm just I, for some reason <laughs> I think of um uh I recently reread Indecent by Paula Vogel the play. Um very good play if you haven't read it. Uh, and it's about, it takes place in the early 1900s and it's about, um, the development of this like very, um, daring, risque, uh, Yiddish drama. I, I think it's, a, I think the play within the play is like completely written in Yiddish and it's about a, oh God, I'm trying to think of how they would describe it. It's about, this man writes a play. He comes, he, there's a play within the play. He, he does a play reading at, I think a salon, like of, of his peers and they're like, some of them are like, whoa, 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 you can't talk about that. You also can't put that in Yiddish because you're telling the story. The play within the play is The God of Vengeance, which uh, was a play about a like brothel keeper who, who whose daughter gets romantically involved with one of his prostitutes. And so there's like a same-sex relationship in it. And God forbid, it's two women. And also it's a Yiddish drama. And... Uh, and it's like this old, old story. And everyone at the salon, half the people at the salon that he first, I'm paraphrasing the fuck out of this play. <laughs> but ha- like some of the people at the salon that he first has, holds a reading of it at are like, they're not actors necessarily. They're just, they jumped in to read it. And some of them are like a gog and a gas and like scandal. No, you can't ever a read the fear again. Yeah. Is Marius in love at last? I have never seen him. <laughs> and ah, uh, I can't say a ghast or a gog without the other because of Lamez. There we go. There we go. <laughs> there it is. There Thank it Greg. is. Um, but then, like half of the people are like, "This is really important work. Oh my god, it's so beautiful. It touched me so much." Like, like, and they would. So they started rehearsing it in like secret, um, and developing it further in secret. And so it just makes me think of that, where it's like maybe mm. you're at a salon and. Some of the people are scandalized and are like, um, please no more. <laughs> Not again, yeah. sir. And then half of them are like, this is very important work. Yeah. Keep doing it. Slash, we don't cool care. We're the cool salon. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to talk and, about and Indecent. Also, Everyone should read Paula Vogel's work. <laughs> well, I literally just wrote it down because now I really want to I really want to read it. Um, also, the point is that like he had... Uh, relationships with women also Mm -hmm. um it says that so the the man that they think he was writing letters to is titus wojciechowski i'm butchering that i'm so sorry who stayed in like his parents ran a boarding house and so he stayed there and they say he may have been the, the composer's great love of his life which first of all directly contradicts the whole george sand thing well i don't know you can love more than one person but romanticizing that Chopin's whole narrative around George Sand and that dramatic love mm-hmm. affair. Um, but also I, I read a quote somewhere else too, that was like being openly gay or gay or bi or straight. It didn't affect how he played. He played so well. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that goes back to, uh, you know, separating the art from the artist. And like, you can say that about a lot of, a lot of bad people. Like, uh van gogh was not a super nice dude he was super chauvinistic and all that stuff his art was still good can we appreciate 
the art without him? Well, yes, you can appreciate the art. But if we don't talk about him being kind of a fucking asshole, being horrible to women, like him, his relationships with women were fucked up. If we don't talk about that, that's the problem. You know? Yeah, the problem is not is not having the full story. Yeah. Then we're saying it's okay that he did these things or it doesn't matter that he did these things because because his art's so good yeah because his art's so good that is not the case and that goes along with that goes back to like accountability culture now there's a documentary about woody allen and if you really love annie hall that's great you can love annie hall you know woody allen was a great filmmaker we don't need to support him anymore and have him make any more movies. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need to go see any more Woody Allen movies. I'm not going to pretend none of them existed. I'm going to keep reading and loving Harry Potter, but I'm going to know that the creator of this is, you know, a turf and being awful to trans people and whatnot. Yeah. So in the bad sense for certain artists, you we need to talk about those things they were doing. They still made great art. They are not exempt from those things because of their art. Conversely, Chopin was gay. It didn't change his art form or how good he was at it or how, or how long lasting it is. But not talking about it makes it seem bad. And it makes it difficult for people following to then show that expression, to then honor that history. And then the whole fucking country is pissed. Yeah. With Billy Tipton... Like, we don't need to know. We don't need to know how, like, we don't, we can't know, technically, mm-hmm. uh, how, and same with Chopin. We can't know, first of all, we can't know if Chopin identified as gay or bi. That doesn't matter to your work, but it does matter. It, it matters to somebody in a way of, like, representation and, like, seeing yourself in yeah. history and acknowledging who people were outside of their work. It adds more depth to their work, too. It adds, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you get to the historical aspect of it, too, it's like this is the life they were living or not living or hiding or open about. And they had to make their art in tandem with that, alongside of that, or insert any historical figure. Yeah, you can use another lens to see the or hear the art that they created through. Well, and we talk a lot about, like, history being narratives and people using those narratives for reasons it's like paul revere so they're chopin's house like original home like people like go to it and and the way they were talking about it it really reminded me of paul revere's house in boston and how they're just telling this tale and turns out sybil luddington did what paul revere did before him and went on a longer ride and actually actually alerted people and stopped the the battle or whatever paul Revere didn't even make it to his destination but that doesn't fit our narrative and we need to look at from this single lens so he is now a myth he is not a human adding all these different dimensions makes these people makes these three-dimensional with depth and complexity and not just this is a story i'm gonna read now about this person Actually, I have a quote uh, in my notes that I didn't read that I think is from a review of, it's definitely about the documentary from last year or from 2020, No Ordinary Man. Um, I think it's from a review and I feel like it kind of speaks to this. It's a longer quote, so bear with me, but it says, 
the film is healthily dubious about the progress that's been made in trans, I mean, insert any, uh, representation and public discourse, taking into account the persistent struggles to be seen and heard, the carefully considered negotiations of being out or being able to just pass, and how visibility can be a double-edged sword. That's to say nothing of combating the circular logic from the cis-heteronormative mainstream, which treats trans people as a recent phenomenon rather than something with a deep historical foundation. By acknowledging Chopin's sexuality, whatever you, however you, you want to label it with your modern language, you're acknowledging that queerness isn't a recent phenomenon. It is, yeah. has deep historical roots. And those roots are important. I told Natalie before we started, I was like, so like, I like, I did my research, but I'm not going to do like chronological, like I want to, uh, you'll see. <laughs> and like, I didn't walk you through Chopin's life or his mazurkas or his impromptus or his, his technique and all of his relationships and his like failing health. Like, because those stories story. of, those stories of Chopin are being told. Yes. First of all, yes, those are being told. And I wanted to follow the theme of queer erasure. And also, like, this seemingly wasn't a huge part of his life in in the grand scheme of, like, bullet points historically, you know? There are some artists who their closeted sexuality is, like, a huge aspect of how they make music or of how they have been persecuted, discriminated. Like, that's usually, like, we need the whole chapter to talk about this. Mm -hmm. This was a part of his life. This was important to him. It was a great love of his life. But it's not like the number one thing we need to talk about. Well, it's I like, think that's important. Like yeah. being able to say, yeah, it, he wrote love letters to dudes. He said he wanted to kiss his best friend. Like that's who he was. Let's acknowledge it and move on. Like let's not make this this huge like – Tear down all the statues. Yeah. He can't be a national dude anymore. Well, and, and on the flip side, like the Billy Tipton narrative now, if you like try to research Billy Tipton, so much of that's what I was saying. It was like they were saying like this, like transphobic media circus. But I'm like, actually, the, the articles shortly after his death that like are announcing his death are not doing a disservice to his legacy or their legacy so much of their legacy now or so much of this the articles and the research you can find it, it presents the the biological gender reveal very quickly and like really focuses on it and it's it's almost sad that it colors their whole like it colors their whole story i think it's important and i think it's interesting and it's like an interesting thing to examine and and draw your own conclusions about why and what and how but whereas it is it is interesting whereas Chopin is able to exist in everyone's mind as Chopin and then this Chopin's potential sexuality or perceived sexuality is like almost a footnote footnote history yeah. coming at you again um that Billy Tipton it's very much at the forefront of the Billy Tipton story of like mm -hmm. this interesting yeah. thing um also, I just want to say, normalize kissing your best friends. What's that quote? I don't. It was attributed to Viola Davis, but I don't know if that was just one of those things where it's like normalize uh, affection with your friends, like kiss your friends' faces, hold your friends' hand, like snuggle, like all that stuff. I was like, show people you fucking love them. Don't make like 
put your tongue down their throat if they don't want it, but... Yeah, don't make it weird and um, make sure that it's consensual, but, like, show affection, share your yes. feelings, don't feel um, like it's weird to tell somebody, like, ugh, ugh. I know. You saying that, like, uh, they, the article now said that, oh, there was this, you know, trans fear and everyone was awful, but you did find this really lovely article about about them that kind of fits our narrative today of everyone in the 90s was awful and we have gotten so much better and we are so progressive now because we're not like we still have there's a lot of shit going on where we Mm. have not caught up or we have not really progressed we're talking about it yeah but there's so many instances that we have not progressed and i think that today narrative of oh they were so awful back then is maybe to make us feel better that like look at how great we are and how good we're doing but it's so reductive because it's it's yes you can acknowledge acknowledge your growth celebrate your growth please do always recognize that you still have work to do we can acknowledge we can (laughs) to your point with the john cusack catalog we can acknowledge when we're hit and play on that movie that our expectations for something aging well is going to be really low and we can pat ourselves on the back for doing better in some categories and by some measurable amount but we're not perfect we're never going to be perfect even if you are like one of the best allies and like most progressive humans out there like you do make mistakes and just like I want you to normalize kissing your best friends <laughs> I want you to normalize saying I fucked up or oops my bad correcting yourself not making a huge deal out of it and moving on <laughs> acknowledging that you fucked up is something that's what yeah I feel like that's been my adult journey is like like learning that nobody knows what they're doing, learning how to ask for help and learning how to be like, whoops-a-doodle, that was 100% me. I made somebody uncomfortable the other day because they corrected me. Um, They corrected me in an email and I'll be honest, I read the email as like kind of like short. Um, They just were like, FYI, I I like misnicknamed them. And I was like, first of all, as somebody whose name can be shortened a million different ways, I should know better. And I was like, oh my, I, I, I sincerely apologize. And they were like, they're like, uh, they said something like, it's cool, like, love you, talk soon, or like, JK, or like, LOL, or something very clearly to be like, I think you took this very seriously. And yeah. I'm like, I should, like, yeah, I should be able to get your your name or your nickname right. And if I don't, it's not the world's not going to end. If I, but like, I'm going to acknowledge that I screwed up and I'm sorry and I should know better. Like, and I will do better next time. Yeah. Also, normalize apologizing. I need to get better at, which I've started doing. Um, If I can't pronounce your name, I'm not going to, I'm going to ask you. I did this recently and I was like, how do you pronounce your name? Cool. And then I said it out loud and now I know how to pronounce their name. And, that's important. It's someone's name and <laughs> feeling uncomfortable for not being able to do that is not a reason to not correct yeah. it and make it better in the future. Yeah. All of this being which said. Is why, which is why we tell you to email us corrections for pronunciation. Yes. 
Yes, I was going to say all this being all this being said by people who get halfway through their notes and sometimes see a note in their notes that says pronunciation, meaning you should you were supposed you were supposed to look this up again before we started recording, <laughs> and you didn't. Uh, and we, I don't want to, I don't want to make little of the fact that like we fuck up names a lot uh, because we are sorry and we want to do better. And we do try. We do try to look it up, but like sometimes it's really hard to find. Sometimes you find contrast, contradicting information. So we're we are always sorry, and we always want you to send questions, corrections, and suggestions. But honestly, probably mostly corrections. You can send those to us at sharedhistorypodcast@gmail.com. Yeah. We get shit wrong. And if you want to listen to any of the music or or see any of the people, you can check out Instagram at sharedpod on Twitter and Instagram. What a little segue into our, our wrap up. <laughs> I know. Well, because I, I it occurred to me as we were talking, I'm like, we're like normalize, apologizing and correcting yourself or not even like making a big deal out of it and apologizing, but just being like my bad and correcting yourself when you get things wrong. And I'm like, funny story about that. Please correct us. <laughs> it, is, it is medicine that we can take. Uh, yes. we, we dole it out and we... We embrace it coming right back at us. Um, what a what a romp! What a historical! What a musical romp! What a ditty we just had. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna be listening. I'm, I'm gonna go. You you go listen to Tipton, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be like jamming to Chopin. I listen to instrumental stuff while I work all the time. So and Justin's you gonna go be- cry, and I'll go start smoking. Great, great. Honestly, yes, really fits my brand. So. <laughs> Uh, and then maybe maybe we'll sound uh, if you smoke enough and I cry enough, maybe our voices will sound different enough for our listeners. Or they'll sound even more alike. <laughs> strained from tears and strained from smoke. You get what you get. Oh man. Um. Well, we have a we have a lot we have a lot to do now, so we have to we have to go. We have to go do these things. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Shared History. We, l- we love you and we would kiss you on your face if you wanted us to and if we were also okay with it and if we weren't in a pandemic. But until then, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, share you later. Share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.